Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. you turn with me in your copies of the scripture this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 24. In a moment we'll read that chapter together, Exodus 24. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice because he has made me glad. Has the Lord made you glad today? Glad, hopefully, even in the last song we sung, Behold Our God Seated on the Throne. What could make us more glad than that? And so it's with gladness in our hearts that we come to God's Word this morning. And now that you've gotten comfortable, would you stand with me as we read Exodus 24, the first 18 verses this morning, out of reverence, out of respect for God's Word. And at the end of verse 18, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate 
and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. All wise Father, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, that we may be blessed in our doing. For Jesus' sake, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read about the prophet Isaiah's encounter with the Lord. Here is how Isaiah begins this important chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Did you hear the proclamation of praise that was upon the lips of the holy angels? What was the declaration that they made to each other? What encouragement were they giving one another? What assurance were they calling out to one another? What a picture. These two fiery angels, each calling out to another in antiphonal praise so that it echoes the Lord's greatness and might so that it's made known to the Lord of hosts, to all who have ears to hear. And what was so great? What was it that they were saying? Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord who orders and commands His armies of angels is known as holy, and not merely holy, but thrice holy, complete holiness, full holiness, divine holiness. It's a holiness that has no admixture of corruption or is in any way distorted or false. It is the Lord's holiness that is the very definition, the very standard of what it means to be holy. The Lord does not merely possess holiness. He is holy. 
He is holy in His three persons. The one God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He cannot be anything other than holy, holy, holy. And there is no one who is more devoted to God and to God's glory than God. And then we are left with this ringing in our ears. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's here where God's transcendent holiness meets with the imminence of His glory. It's here where God's transcendent shows us His greatness and how massive His glory is and what a thought that the glory of God's all-present holiness is filling all of His creation. The anticipation of such a reality and the desire for such a reality. So think about that. The anticipation of such a reality and the desire for such a reality is spoken by the angels like it's a reality right now in the presence. The whole earth is full of His glory. And what is the benefit of this glory if not the very presence of the covenant Lord Himself? To commune with the Lord is to commune with His glory. It's to be immersed in His glory. It's to be enveloped in His glory. It's to be surrounded by His glory. It's to know the intimate experience of His glory and so in essence to know God. The whole earth is full of His glory, but all of the earth cannot contain His glory or limit His glory or in any way diminish His glory. Is our reality the reality of the angels? Are we able to say with them, the whole earth is full of His glory? I fear that we cannot. We struggle and wrestle with such a thought. We are even burdened by such a thought. Why? Why? Why do we struggle to say with them, the whole earth is full of His glory? How can we say, the whole earth is full of His glory, when even our own selves aren't full of His glory? When God's glory doesn't fill our minds, doesn't fill our hearts, doesn't fill our souls, when it doesn't fill us to complete fullness, there's a problem. The Hebrew word for glory has this connotation of weightiness or heaviness. God's glory is weighty. Maybe in your younger years you used to say things were heavy. That's heavy, man. God's glory is heavy. And this is our problem, and it's too many Christians' problem as well. The problem is that we are too often as light as 
a feather. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said this, Some Christians have light hearts. A light Christian will be blown into any opinion or vice. You may blow a feather any way. There are many feathery Christians. Why? Why are there feathery Christians? My wife used to have these pillows on our chairs and couches in our family room that were filled with feathers. And you know what those feathers would do? They would somehow work their way out of the pillows and be around our house. And you'd walk by those pillows and the feathers would follow you, right? As your wind carried them along or blew them about all over the house. And that's what Thomas Watson is talking about. That's what I'm talking about when we say feathery Christians. They're blown every which way. Why are there feathery Christians? Because there are Christians who think too little of God's glory. They are too little occupied with God's glory. They have filled up their lives with numerous other things. And so what is it that maybe you have filled your life up with? What are the things that you give your time and your attention to? Where are your priorities? The greatness of God's glory? Or have you settled for light, fluffy stuff? Stuff that merely keeps you occupied with an earthly existence, but never brings eternity and the transcendence of God's glory into your hearts in the life that you live now on the earth. Feathery Christians have filled their life with numerous other things, but their life is not filled with God's glory. So, instead of being weighed down with God's glory like an oak tree so that we exhibit mature discernment and unwavering faith in the midst of trials. Think about that. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we long for in our own lives, to be oak tree Christians? Where whatever happens in our life, it's not going to move us. It's not going to shake us. It's not going to make us wring our hands in worry. Oak tree Christians who exhibit maturity in discernment so that we can say, yes, this is what is right and true and good, and no, this is what is wrong and bad and ungodly. And those who have an unwavering faith in the midst of trials. The Bible talks about these trees like trees being planted by streams of water that send out their roots, that are always bearing fruit and never worried about the drought that might come. Oh, how we would want to be oak tree Christians and not feathery Christians who are blown about this way and that with no consistency, with no grounding in their lives. They are tossed to and fro unable to discern the will of God and easily overcome by trials and temptations. Oh, how we need God's glory to fill our lives. 
light as a feather is only dangerous and deadly. Oh, we need more time, more thought, more affection devoted to God's glory. Yet does it ever seem like there is only a great distance between us and God's glory? Does it ever seem like there is a chasm between us and the glory of God's presence? Do we ever see part of God's overarching plan of redemption, God's overarching plan in the Bible is giving us his glory? He wants to give us his glory. He wants to give us himself. He wants us to enter into his glory with the joy and confidence of a child of God. This is why the Lord makes a covenant with the Israelites on Mount Sinai. The reality of the glory of God is becoming more and more evident in their lives through God's desire to live in a relationship with them. God is saying to them, I'm going to live in relationship with you, and as I live in relationship, you get to see more and more glory. My glory is going to come closer and closer and closer to you. God is going to give them his glory. And as we go on in the Bible, we see God do this more and more. Give more of himself, more of his presence, and so more and more of, a, of his glory. And with greater glory comes greater communion with God. So more glory, more communion, more fellowship with God. Why do you want God's glory? I want God's glory because I want to commune with God. I want to be near God. I want to be close to God. I can't have no glory and think, yeah, I have God. And so, with God giving his glory to his people, he wants that because he wants greater communion with his people. He wants greater fellowship with his people. The more you know his glory, the more you are filled with his glory, the more you dwell in his glory, the closer you are to God. And so, how has God designed to show his people his glory so that they can have greater communion with him. Two ways. One, we talked about last week. This is in your bulletin. I think it's on the back side, maybe of the, either the OCC or the announcements. The announcements, I think. Back side of your announcements. If you want to follow along, there you can. But number one, we talked about last week. As those sanctified by the blood of the covenant, we commune with God through a meal. And so, we saw the blood of the covenant being thrown on the people, sanctifying them, setting them apart as God's people, them making this commitment of devotion to the Lord. All that the Lord has said, we will do, we will be obedient. And then after this confirmation of this covenant, after this marriage ceremony of God saying, I do, and the people saying, I do, and them being brought together, the elders and, and Moses and Aaron and his sons go up on the mountain and they behold God. They see God and they get a glimpse of God and a glimpse of his glory and all they see is the, the stuff underneath his feet. All they see is the, the pavement of sapphire stone underneath his feet. 
that says it's, it's clear. It's this clear stone that they saw that was underneath his feet. As the heavens for clearness, I think, to draw their minds up to, to God. And they had a meal. They ate with God. And last week we drew that connection as they were people who were devoted to God as they had the blood of the covenant applied to them. So now we are those who are devoted to God because the blood of the Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God, has been applied to us. And just as they ate a meal with God, so we eat a meal with God, the Lord's Supper, to commune with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who administers himself, who gives himself, even as we look to an even better meal in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb, there with Jesus Christ, where, where we will eat and dine with him. What a great day. What great communion. So as those sanctified by the blood, we commune with God through a meal. But today I want to focus on this second one. As those instructed by the word of the covenant, as those instructed by the word of the covenant, we commune with God through a mediator. We commune with God through a mediator. Let's be honest here for a moment. There are some invitations that we get from other people that we look forward to getting, but there are some invitations we might not be so keen on. Well, get an invitation to go to this person's house and maybe I'll do it because I feel like I have to do it or whatever. Some invitations, we can't wait to get those invitations. We look forward to those invitations. Moses here gets an amazing invitation from God. Come up to me on the mountain. What an invitation. From the Lord himself to Moses. Come up to me, Moses. Moses was called in the very presence of God himself. That's an invitation you can't refuse. You don't want to refuse it. Seven times in this chapter, we read about Moses or the leaders going up or ascending up to the Lord. Yahweh, we have been told in Exodus 19.20, descended upon Mount Sinai. He came down and he took up residence on the mountain in chapter 19. And it told us there that the whole mountain was wrapped up in smoke because the Lord descended upon it with fire and that it trembled greatly. So think of this. The Lord, the God of heaven, descended onto Mount Sinai, yet there was still a distance between him and the people. Israel could not come up on the mountain. They could not even touch the mountain. But Moses, the chosen one and called one by God to lead God's people, he is invited by Yahweh to come up to him on the mountain. It's an important action. This language of 
descending and ascending has important historical redemptive significance. It's redemptive language. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He ascends to the Lord. And what happens? The Lord is going to write on tablets of stone the law and the commandment. We know these to be the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Yahweh is going to write them on two tablets because there are two parties. One tablet to remind the Israelites of what they are to do. One tablet for Him to say, this is what I'm going to do. And so the Lord is going to write. And later we find out that He writes on these tablets with His very finger. And it's said that they are, these are like words of fire that come from him. What does it say here in chapter 24? End of verse 12. I have written these for their instruction. God is instructing his people. He's teaching his people. It's for their good. It was to be obeyed. Here is the word of the covenant that was supposed to hold the people accountable to live the way that God wanted them to live before him, the way that he had prescribed for them. And the Lord doesn't do this because he's a killjoy. It was the law that was meant to be for their flourishing, for their goodness. It was a law that was to distinguish them from the pagan nations. It was a law to make them salt and life, or salt and light in the earth. It was a law that was meant to bring them to God. It was a law that was to give them a knowledge of their sin and would even make them run to God for help. As they had just said, all that the Lord has said we will do, the law was meant to expose them and show that all that the Lord has said we cannot do, we need His help. We need to depend upon Him. This law is not for salvation. This law is not for redemption. Think about this even in the context of Exodus. God had already rescued his people. God had already redeemed his people. God had already saved his people. What is this? This is the fruit of that salvation. Now look at all that God has done and now here is how you are to live with him in relationship. This isn't to earn your salvation this is to be the fruit of the salvation that God has given to you. Just like if you've ever seen an apple tree that has the bows of its branches weighed down because of all of the apples that are on it. What do those apples tell you? Do you say, wow, look at how those apples have made that tree so healthy. Look at how those apples have made that tree grow. No, you don't say that. Why? Because the apples are the evidence of a healthy tree. The apples didn't do anything to make the tree grow. The tree made the apples grow. The tree made the abundant amount of fruit that's weighing down the tree. And so what do we learn here? We don't add anything to our salvation 
Our obedience is the fruit of the salvation that has been given to us by God. When we look at a life of obedience, we don't say, wow, look at what they've done to earn their salvation. We say, wow, look at their obedience. How great must their salvation be? What does your life of obedience say about the salvation that God has given you? The law was not meant to save them. It was not meant to bring salvation. In fact, it is written on stone tablets because the law was only to be temporary. The law here that was written on tablets of stone is incapable of changing people. It only pointed forward to another law a better law. It's what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 3.3. Listen to this. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is what we need, lives that have been changed because of Christ and because of his gospel, and now he's taken his word and he's written it here upon our hearts. He's changed us from the inside out. We don't need tablets of stone because tablets of stone can't change us. We need our own hearts to be the letter of Christ to the world so that when the world looks at us, they read the letter of Christ. They say, these are people who follow the word of Christ. These are people who have been changed by Christ. This is the word of the covenant that is now upon us that causes us to live differently. And I wonder if this is not all of God's redemptive purposes when he says that he is going to take away from us hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Hearts of stone don't work. Hearts of stone can't change themselves. Hearts of stone, we pray and hope, are only temporary. But when God causes the change and gives hearts of flesh, then we have hearts that work. Hearts that work permanently, forever. Hearts that never have heart disease. Hearts that never have congestive heart failure. Hearts that work forever and ever on into eternity. The Holy Spirit has so worked in our lives to regenerate us, to make us new, to radically change us, so that we become living testimonies to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Before Moses, however, goes up to receive these tablets, he has to set things in order in the camp of the Israelites. Moses is going up on the mountain. He's going to take Joshua, his assistant, with him part of the way up the mountain. Everyone else is supposed to stay in the camp at the base of the mountain, and what does it say? 
if there arose any disputes, any matters that needed to be dealt with, anything that needed to be handled, Aaron and Hur were put in charge to take care of those. Moses is going up for a while, and these men are to ensure that order is maintained while he's gone. And I think here there is a hint of the reality of the struggle that's going to come upon the Israelites. What Moses puts in order is going to be more difficult than they imagined. Because right now in Exodus 24, we're leaving the site of the camp of the Israelites, but in a few short chapters, we'll be coming back to the camp and it'll be very different. Aaron and her were ultimately going to fail. We are set up here with the expectation that all should be well in the camp. But there will be a different reality when we come down than what was expected. But after Moses lays this expectation for the people, he goes up. And he's going up on the mountain because he is acting as a mediator. When he goes up, he will encounter the very presence of God. He is, in fact, representing Israel before God. Moses is the covenant mediator of the old covenant. And it was on Mount Sinai that the cloud covered the mountain. It was the glory of God that was dwelling on the mountain. And Moses went up and he waited six days. Even he is not permitted to rush into the very presence of the Lord. He could not presume upon the glory of the Lord. It was only on the seventh day that what? Only the seventh day the Lord called out to Moses from the cloud. Could it be that this six days of waiting and then this seventh day that came would be a little vignette of what God's plan was for his people? They were going to have to wait and trust until the Lord finally called them into his rest. And then we come to verse 17, which gives us a very different perspective, doesn't it? Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire on top of the mountain. It was a terrifying sight, one that would keep the people away. It would make the Israelites think twice about trying to ascend the mountain for themselves. For them to make their way to God would have been disastrous. The devouring fire would have come out and would have consumed them. But Moses could go into the very presence of the Lord because he was the chosen covenant mediator. Moses was able to enter into the very presence of the Lord and not be consumed. And that is what the people needed before the Lord. They needed a covenant mediator if they were going to be able to commune with God. And it is a covenant mediator, mediator that we need if we are truly going to be able to commune with God. This is why God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. He came as our covenant mediator, and He confirms a better covenant. He is a better covenant mediator. This is confirmed on Mount Sinai, if you ha or on Mount, uh, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So Luke 9, if you have your Bibles. Luke 9. 
Luke 9. This is amazing. Luke 9, verse 28 is where I'll start. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Literally, that word departure is exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one of, in those days anything of what they had seen. Do you see a similarity here of what happens in Exodus 24 and now what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? <laughs> Peter wakes up a little bit from his stupor sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah and Jesus in this dazzling apparel and this glory and he says, Master, it is good that we are here. You think, Peter? You think it's good that you're there? Of course it's good that you're there. You're in the glory of God. And then what? A cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid. Are we going to be consumed? Is God going to break out? Are we going to die? And as they entered the cloud, what happened? A voice came out. What happened with Moses? The voice of God called out to Moses from the cloud. And I think it called out from the cloud, calling Moses to enter the cloud, saying, You are my chosen covenant mediator, Moses. I'm calling you into my presence. And now, here again is a cloud and a voice calling out from the cloud of God the Father. And what is he doing? This is my presence covenant mediator my chosen one and he's more than that he's my son listen to him obey him he is the one who has the word of the covenant who will instruct you he is the new covenant mediator who will seal this covenant with his own blood Jesus Christ is the mediator we need, who is the only mediator that will be able to bring us to God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Only Jesus can be the mediator between God and man because Jesus is the only one who is the God-man. He is fully God and at the same time he is fully man. He is able then to bring us to God and usher us into God's very presence. And he does this by his own merit, by his own obedience, by his own righteousness. Not ours, 
Christ is the mediator of God's grace and of God's love and of God's justice and of God's mercy and of God's presence and of God's glory. Listen to what Jeremiah Burroughs says about Christ as our mediator. All good comes from God through a mediator. Think about that. All good comes from God through a mediator, through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man. All my services are offered up to God through Him. There is this mediator, this God-man, who united God and me together. By Him, I have acceptance for both my person and my actions. By Him, I have other kinds of blessings than come from God merely as Creator. God in bounty bestows upon the creature many good things, but when we come to deal with God in Christ, we come to have heavenly blessings, blessings beyond the power of nature, yea, beyond all those blessings that nature can convey, beyond all the blessings that the creature can hold, they have the blessing from God immediately by the mediation of Christ. They enjoy God in Christ and so come to enjoy God in a heavenly, supernatural way. You have blessings in this life. You have blessings that come from God as your creator. Those are good blessings. We should be thankful for those. But those blessings can't hold a candle to the heavenly blessings that we get from Christ. What a mediator we have. The only way to God, the only way to know God, the only way to enjoy the benefits of the bridge that we did nothing to build. The Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, it's said that each of those two towers has over 600,000 bolts in them. And every day people drive on that bridge across the bay. Every day maybe you drive across the bridge. You drive across that bridge even though you did nothing to build that bridge. You enjoy the benefits of that bridge. That bridge is not there because of you. We enjoy the benefit of Jesus Christ being Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder, the one who brings us to God. The one who is the mediator so that we can know God and commune with God. He bridges the great divide between us and and the glory of the divine God so that we can have access to God. And look at what it says here, back in Exodus 24. Let me go back there, Exodus 24. At the very end, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights without eating or drinking. We find that out later. 40 days and nights of receiving the law of God, the Torah, Forty days and nights being told the very instructions of how God is going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. And what happens? Forty days and forty nights. As soon as Moses receives the law, he comes down from the mountain. 
and the people have already broken the law. And chaos and judgment ensues. But the better covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without eating, without drinking. But rather than breaking the law, he fulfills the law. And what ensues? Something far greater. Salvation and redemption ensues because of our covenant mediator. This leads me to one more question. What has Jesus done for us? Look at Hebrews 9. Look at Hebrews 9 quickly with me. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he, that's Christ, is the covenant mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now skip down to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you hear what Jesus does as the, covenant, as the mediator of the new covenant? He appears into the very presence of God himself. He did what no other sacrifice could do. He did what Moses appearing in the presence of God could not do. Jesus secured eternal redemption for his own people through his own sacrifice of himself. He offered himself on the cross one time to bear the sins of many. He died on the cross bearing the wrath and judgment and punishment of God that should have been poured out upon sinners. Moses went into the very presence of God and the people should have anticipated an even greater relationship, even greater fellowship, even greater communion with God when Moses returns. I can't wait till Moses returns because it's going to be great. And as the mediator... When Moses went into the presence of God, he was representing God to the people. Moses would give the people what he had been given by God. And in one sense, Moses was supposed to give God to the people. If that is the case, how much should the people have been looking forward to Moses' return? But how much more should we be looking forward to Christ's return? Where has our mediator gone? He has ascended in the clouds to be seated at the very right hand of God. 
He is there making intercession for us before the throne of God. His ministry as our mediator continues even now. But we also anticipate a day when he is going to come again. When he is going to come and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Does that describe you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Are you looking forward to it? Is that a regular thought in your day? Christ is coming again He has come the first time to deal with our sin, to put away our sin, to make atonement for our sin, to forgive us of our sin. He is coming again not to deal with sin. He has already done that work. He is coming to save his own, the final and full salvation we have eagerly been waiting for, longing for, and then what? What happens when Christ returns? Isn't it even greater communion with God? Won't it be the complete fullness of the glory of God, a glory that finally fills us completely, a glory fills a new heaven and a new earth, a glory that can never and will never be diminished, a glory like we've never known because we will finally see the face of our Savior and be made like him because we will see him as he really is. Pray, pray that you are filled with God's glory today, but look forward and anticipate and long for the greater glory, the greater fellowship with God that is to come when we are finally at home on Mount Zion. Let's pray. What greater thing can we ask for, Lord, than your glory? What greater longing can there be in our hearts than to be filled with your glory? What greater day do we look forward to when there will be a new heavens, a new earth that will be filled with your glory and we will dwell there with you in glory forever and ever. Forgive us for the days that we think little of your glory. Forgive us for the days when we think little of our covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. Forgive us for the times when we think we can bridge the gap. And let us come again to Christ. He's the only way. He's the only way to commune with you. He's the only way to be with you. He is the one that we eagerly wait for his return and so wait for more glory. I pray that we would have seen your glory this morning through your word and by the working of your spirit in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.